Hey, Justin. Yes, David. I've come up with a way to save the TV industry. And what is that? A podcast all about TV shows and the people that make them happen. Good. When are we going to start it? Ten seconds ago. This is TV Show and Tell. Hello and welcome to TV Show and Tell, the podcast that's your friendly guide to the mysterious world of the television industry. I'm David Bodicum. I'm a TV producer and games consultant from London. And I'm Justin Scroggy, and I'm known internationally as the Format Doctor. And in today's show, we have a very entertaining chat with the TV and radio presenter Matt Edmondson, who's taken the use of formats in a surprising new direction. We'll also look at the benefits of scaling up, and both Justin and I will be revealing our top hacks for filming days. But first, it's the news, and here's Justin back from his travels with the latest. So my first piece of news is about the Writers Guild of America, who are Mm -hmm. threatening to go on strike. That may seem it hasn't got much to do with the television that we're used to, because it's primarily to do with drama. However, it is relevant. Because the previous time that they went on strike, which was back in 2007, they struck for 100 days and it had quite a major impact on our industry. Essentially, if all the writers on all of these American dramas go on strike, they ran out of episodes pretty quickly. And the result of it was that there was massive holes in the schedule. So what did they do? Well, at the time, reality shows and reality competitions were, they were already on the rise, but they were still regarded as very much, you know, second tier watching. And suddenly the networks required vast amounts of them. So they commissioned loads. If you can imagine, there were 60 TV, whole TV shows that were shut down. Late night, all late night chat shows closed down. All the things like the Golden Globes and things were shut down. Now, they all had to be filled. Mm. So there was a 100 new unscripted shows debuted during that 100 days. <laughs> which is quite, quite something. Um, from you know, competition shows, dating shows, life improvement series, they all debuted between November the t- 2007 and February the 12th, 2008. So that really, really changed the industry. So when all of these writers came back to work, they found a very, very different landscape. Mm. So this time around, they're, they're striking over pay, but they're also striking over the threat from the streamers. And from what I can gather, because I don't always understand the sort of technicalities of, of American drama series, but it comes down to the size of the writing teams. And apparently the streamers are using much, much smaller writing groups or even individual writers. And they're just bringing in breakdown writers as and when they need them for a a few days here, a few days there. And so this has had a a major impact on employment and pay. And they want parity between the streamers and the networks. So that's what they're they're striking about this time. Anyway, so we all shall wait and see. We'll probably know... By the 1st of May, whether the strike goes ahead, and if it does, it might be you know very bad for all those shows that we know and love, but it could actually be quite good for us in the unscripted space. Mm, yeah, weirdly. 
Well, you'd think things would be a boom time, but actually there's been quite the bloodbath while you've been away. Mm. There's been um, a huge number of UK shows that have been cancelled. So there's been One and Six Zeros, Alan Carr's Epic Game Show, Ninja Warrior UK, Catchpoint, I Can See Your Voice, The Masked Dancer, Question Team, Bad Chefs, You've Been Framed, which has been going for about 20 years, and one of the best-received new quiz shows of recent times, Moneybags on Channel 4. Oh, really? I thought that had been recommissioned with you know with great trumpets. Well, it had a second series. What? It got put in the 5pm slot against The Chase and The Pointless. Did pretty badly. Right. That isn't the reason why it's been cancelled. The reason it's been cancelled is that the company that makes it, Youngest Media, has folded up shop. Wow, really? Gosh. So this is a company that was led by David Flynn, Mm. an executive from Remarkable Television, went off to make their own company and sort of had a few successes but the I think the the key thing was that it was always meant to be a company that tried to get content to work across media. Yeah. So it, so it it wasn't just a thing about we're going to make TV shows and so we're going to make game shows on TV. It's also going to be we're going to make stuff work online and we're going to make stuff work on mobile phones. Mm-hmm. So for example, their their show Small Fortune, where you had to say flick a coin into a cup on a tiny little set, there was going to be an app app version of that where you, play your own version of that game on your phone now that kind of worked as far as it did but the online mini formats that they've tried to get to work unfortunately just looked like poor versions of tv shows rather than good versions of of things that say mr beast would have Mm. done and i think this is an issue that TV companies have a certain amount of costs built in in terms of the way they do things and they they can't be as cheap and as flexible and and get a a good enough amount of eyeballs per pound that they spend that that YouTubers do. It's just a completely different way of of making stuff. Mm. And I think that element of their strategy was wrong. But they did have a number of like close calls apparently in terms of getting a new set of commissions, and those those close calls went against them. And reportedly, that they they folded with about three million pounds owing to one of their directors, according to one report. Gosh. So they sort of had to um, accept that they'd run out of road. Yeah, well, it's a it's a very tough industry out there, as as you know. But you're right. I think the idea some years ago that all of these kind of media would converge in in some way. Actually, they're they're very still very different beasts. They have entirely different economies, and none of them necessarily have a vested interest in spreading into the other. If that makes sense, it doesn't. One one doesn't necessarily increase the visibility or sales of the other. Aside from the fact that you know you you do need a different set of skill sets in order to to operate in them, but uh, well, I'm sure that you know David Flynn is a hugely talented guy, and I'm sure he'll reemerge like a chrysalis um, into a butterfly and continue to delight us all in the future. So a few months ago, I think I mentioned that Barb, which is our ratings audience measurement system in the UK, had extended their reach to include the streamers, streaming platforms. And we talked about then about actually how quite how surprising the ratings were for some of the uh, 
shows on the streamers that we assumed were heavily watched and were not watched as much as we thought. Anyway, they have announced that they're going to expand their audience measurement to YouTube or to the video sharing platforms with a very interesting phrase. So they're going to measure the audiences for what they call fit for TV content. Right. Right. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so because the, the videos have a, have a video account anyway so that what does that mean even well that's a good question so but i looked at the benchmarks for this so the benchmarks for fit for tv is it must have editorial input and oversight so in other words not purely user generated um mm. and it must have regulatory compliance in other words it must have been checked by professional editors or compliance officers so that it aligns with you know the regulations that are around within the industry and thirdly it must be content that provides a safe and suitable environment for advertisers right so that rules out just about the whole of youtube which obviously is self-produced and if it's monitored it's monitored by automated tools you know that are supposed to check whether the content is legal or not yeah well it is surprising actually how much content is allowable in terms of of youtube like when you these days there's a new system where if you upload video to youtube there's about seven different categories of things like is swearing violence deceptive behavior weapons dangerous acts and things like mm. that and then if your video has none of them you just click a button at the bottom that says save for all of these things and you, you self-certify right. however if there's something like a, a particular amount of swearing then in the first few minutes of the video or in the title and it's unavoidable then you sort of say this video contains swearing now and there's sort of various within each category there's various levels of things yeah. so like if you maybe are mentioning that there's somebody who did a dangerous thing that might be sort of level one of this this scale and then increasingly if if you are genuinely showing someone leaping out of a of a helicopter with no backpack or something stupid then then that would be like level three of it <laughs> um even if you have to tick a number of these boxes, it will still probably say this video is still safe for ads. You still will probably get adverts mm. for it. You have to be relatively extreme before it will start to flag up and say, mm, actually, we probably aren't going to put adverts on it. I think the key thing that, I mean, even when on videos where we're even just mentioning something let's say like a scam or something like that just discussing it in a light-hearted way as long as you tick um, a level that is beyond what is actually happening so as long as you, you, youtube isn't being surprised then it, it's it the, the algorithm is happy right. uh, it's what it's when you sort of say this has got nothing wrong in the video and then suddenly it comes across as like maybe there's a mention of a terrorist organization, mm. even if it's jokingly, then then it then the the algorithm will will check what people are saying or what is in the video through a semi automated system, and then if if it is surprised by something, then that's when you start to get sort of knocked down. Right. Well, then yeah. So I can see how that might work, and that's really helpful to know that. I think when you get into the kind of editorial oversight, as in, is it being checked by real people and so on? I think 
that's going to rule a lot of stuff out. Still, I think it does show, you know, really in the last couple of years that, you know, Barb have belatedly recognised the audience has gone somewhere else and they're, you know, they're trying to do something about it. What, of course, is missing hugely in all of this is smartphones because Barb are unable to measure television watching on a smartphone because apparently, as I understand this, they measure on other devices using audio watermarking, um, which basically means that certain sound frequencies are picked up by a meter that then tracks the panel members' uh, internet activity, and they can't do that on a smartphone. Um, so, of course, you know, all of those hundreds of thousands of people who are watching you know, the majority of their content on the phone doesn't count. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's as always the same thing that technology moves forwards and then the regulations run to catch up. Just wanted to mention a show that I saw this week, which I found genuinely funny. It, it takes a lot to make me laugh out loud, but there was a New Zealand show mm-hmm. uh, hosted by the Kiwi comedian Guy Montgomery, and it's called Guy Montgomery's Guy Mont Spelling Bee, which is, doesn't quite work as a pun for me, but never mind. It's basically just four celebrities, and there's a number of spelling rounds. Mm-hmm. And I was sort of intrigued trying to try to work out how can they make a show like that funny? Because there's been a number of shows that have been based on spelling, and you've worked on one yourself. And so it's it's there's not much game content and a lot of chat, and a, but it is pretty funny. So that the first round is just do you want. Uh, like a one point, two point or three point word to spell, but it's like, you know, do you want it from Coward's Cup or the People's Purse or the the Bucket of Bravery, I think it's called. Mm-hmm. So the, and that you can ask for the word in the sentence or you can ask for the, the language of origin and the sort of various mm-hmm. jokes that they can spin off of things like that. But then each each episode the, the next few rounds are actually different. So for example, in the second round there's a number of flags and you have to spell the name of the country from the flag and so what happens is like people spell um spain but actually the the flag was uruguay or whatever it doesn't sound like a massive (laughs) amount of fun when i explain it but actually it's it's pretty funny when they completely get things wrong and there's just a a nice number of pre-scripted jokes and and banter it's the, the set also is quite nice in that they've gone for a theme. I, I I do think that sets and design have got a bit homogenous oh, over the God, last few absolutely. years. Yes, it's just basically and um, very very similar. Yeah. And so what they've done is that they've gone for like a really sort of nineteen seventies retro style theme. Mm. Actually worked quite well given the sort of slightly retro nature of the of the content of being spelling bee. And that sort of gives it a bit of personality. So. I don't see it being a massive seller in terms of a format because so much of it is dependent on the personality of Guy Montgomery, who's a very, very funny comedian. Mm. And and, uh, you would need somebody whip smart to host it successfully in other places. Mm. And of course, (laughs) the pun of the title won't work either. No, they do need to have an international title. But I mean, what, what, no, I definitely need to check it out because. I mean, I quite like spelling-based shows, but they do have that problem that we've talked about before, which is the kind of nerdy, geeky problem that the, particularly the kids that are especially good at very, very complicated words, you know, don't always 
come across as warm and fuzzy as you'd like them to, even if they're absolutely delightful in person. And by you know by by making it a comedian based show, you you get around that problem and you broaden it out, which is which is clever. Where can I see it, David? Um, not legally. <laughs> <laughs> okay, right. So, uh, well, maybe you could leave a sort of a VHS in a brown paper bag in a bin in a in a Sainsbury's car park, and I can uh, I can go and get it. Our special guest today is TV and radio presenter Matt Edmondson. Matt's career has spanned children's TV, roving reporter roles, and presenting for BBC Radio 1. He's also developed his own formats and found an unusual outlet for them. His story underlines the benefits of having tenacity and a can-do attitude. Let's hear from him now. And I'm pleased to say that uh, we're now joined by the best thing to come out of Portsmouth since the A3. It's Matt Edmondson. Welcome, Matt. Hello. Thank you very much. Now, we have so many different areas of media that you're sort of involved with. Your schedule must be an absolute nightmare. Seems like I get a lot done, but um, I do a lot of work in travel. If I'm on the tube, I will always be working or on a train, I'll be working. If I'm on the loo, I'll be tinkering about with something. And generally, because the stuff I'm working on is really creatively fulfilling, it doesn't feel like work. It just feels like oh, I'm getting to do this fun thing now. So, you know, whilst I might otherwise use that time to mindlessly scroll TikTok and I still do do that, if I've got a creative project on the go, that's sort of like a uh, a one-track mind hyper-focus situation for me where I, uh, you know, the rest of the world melts away and I want to get involved in only that one thing. Are you one of these people that just wanted to be in the media and you didn't really care about exactly how... Or did you have a very targeted aim of like, I want to be on the Radio 1 Breakfast show or, or what was it? I never really wanted to do radio. That's been a happy accident that's come along. As a kid, I was obsessed with TV, specifically continuity links on kids' TV. So I loved the bits between the shows. Wasn't that fussed about Blue Peter? Wasn't that fussed about Newsround, but loved the person that said, that was Blue Peter, here's Newsround. That was like a really comforting space for me when I got home from school. Every day I'd come back and I'd watch CBBC and the presenters just looked like they are having the best time. They were kind of doing what I was doing, which is watching those shows with their friends and having a great time. And I thought, that is the job for me. I want to do that. And so from a very early age, maybe sort of as young as six or seven, I thought, well, that's what I'm going to do. And, and that did not deviate throughout my entire teenage years. And then eventually, and very fortunately, I ended up getting to do that job of, of being a CB, CBBC continuity presenter. So that was my obsession. And I think I particularly liked live TV. I loved things like SMTV Live and Live and Kicking and TFI Friday and all those sorts of things. But really, I just loved continuity. It's quite a weird thing. And then I've ended up doing loads of continuity type things in my life. So I did CBBC. I did T4, which is kind of continuity, but, you know, teenagers and, and, and older people. I guess radio's got a bit of that about it as well. But that was my first love. As a teenager, I had a slightly formative experience where we were asked at school to, to go do work experience. Now, I'm, as you mentioned, from Portsmouth. And there isn't all that much in the way of kind of exciting media there. No offence to the Portsmouth news. So I... <laughs> I was like, right, I'm going to go to London. I'm going to get some work experience there and I'm going to go and work in TV. And I bothered an incredible guy, a guy called Anthony Owen, who's sadly no longer with us, but brilliant TV producer and magician. As a kid, I was into magic. 
so my two worlds collided when he after and i mean i every day i email this guy and he said <laughs> no probably 300 times before it was just easier to say fine come along he gave me some work experience when i was 14 years old on one of the darren brown specials mind control 2 andrew was like long-term collaborator with darren on, on lots of his shows wasn't he andrew connor runs objective or run objective yeah and and he could still collaborate with darren so yeah it was like the creative team was sort of andrew connor andy nyman anthony owen and then darren and it was an amazing experience getting to be in what at the time was a very small production company they had a few things that they were working on peep show was sort of not yet created and and but it was sort of like being tinkered with in the office I realised, oh, okay, I like this side of TV as well. I like the creative producing side of things. And I had just the best time on that show. I think it's the happiest two weeks of my life. It was amazing. Every part of it was great. It was the magic. It was the TV. And so it was always my agenda to do CBBC. That's like what I really wanted to do. But I also knew that I wanted to be involved in the behind the scenes stuff on TV as well. And I get kind of equal joy from both. Because the thing about the CBBC and TV4, I would suggest, is that, yes, they were presenting what's coming up, but they also, just has got this great phrase for this, showing the plumbing is a glimpse of an autocue, or you might, you might hear somebody shout from the back of the studio. You get a little bit of, this is how a television studio works. Yeah, I like it. I like the chaos of live TV. I loved it when things would go slightly off-piste, and I actually love that on the radio now as well. The, the best stuff we do tends to be the stuff we haven't planned. There's something really exciting about that as a kid. And I think sometimes that it can feel forced, but when it when it feels authentic, it's about the most riveting thing you can watch. So I remember really loving Anton Deck on SMTV Live because you could tell that the relationship was obviously genuine, but also they just cracked up all the time, constantly laughing, constantly trying to make each other laugh, constantly messing things up. We had a VHS tape of the best bits and we used to watch it all the time. And it featured, you know, when stuff had gone wrong. And it was my favourite part of the whole thing. And actually one of the things that really confirmed to me, like, oh, I want to do presenting. I remember, and I've spoken to Dermot O'Leary about this. I watched him and Vernon Kay present a party in the park on T4. So it was an event that T4 were covering, but they weren't running it. So they had no control over it. They were merely relaying the feed. I think it was Vernon's first thing on T4 with Dermot live. And it was going on for like four hours. Uh, June Sarpong was there in a kind of roving reporter role. I think it was Elton John, I might have misremembered that, but I think it was Elton John who was late and was not on stage when he was meant to. Uh, and they had to fill for probably about 45 minutes. <laughs> and it was one camera and it was just them. It started off, you know, them talking about the day and who they'd seen and oh, what was that? And it sort of descended over the 45 minutes into them breaking every fourth wall imaginable <laughs> basically just explaining what happened explaining that there was a floor manager there constantly saying that they had to fill and the greatest <laughs> bit of it was when they obviously managed to get june out to like some extra bit with an extra camera they probably at this point been talking for like 20 minutes solid and derma and vernon threw to june and said oh i think i think actually june's backstage now june what's going on and they threw to her and she was in the back of a van and she said not much going on here, boys. Back to you. <laughs> so they had literally three seconds of respite, and then it was back into the filling. And I, I thought it was the best thing I'd ever watched. I was like, oh, man, this looks so fun. 
it's often the way that you see the best of people as well in their situations. I remember watching Alan Carr presenting a uh, Channel 4 talent show on a giant conveyor belt. The, the viewers were supposed to decide live whether the singer went forwards towards the golden mic or backwards and dropped off the back of the stage. I don't think that technology ever worked. And I'm, I'm, I was sitting there watching this car crash, but thinking, you know what? I've never been a big Alan Carr fan, but he is a trooper. You know, he is working so hard to keep this ship afloat. Um, and I just sat there and I just ad admired him and, and kind of fell in love with him as a presenter. Yeah, it's um, it's a real skill to be able to kind of bring the bring the joy of the chaos yeah. through rather than, you know, the panic. Yeah. I was I co-host my radio show with Molly King and when she first joined, I, I said there are no mistakes in radio. There's either a mistake that's inconsequential and so small that no one will even think about it. And you might worry about it for days, but no one, everyone's forgotten it. No one cares. It's so small, you know, no one worries. People make mistakes when they talk all the time. Or it's so big that it becomes what we talk about on the show and then it's a great bit of yeah. content. So there's just no, no such thing as an actual problematic mistake. Do you sort of like crisscross between radio and TV and just kept hitting the yeses to do little bits and bigger bits and then you're at your own show? And When CBBC came to an end, so there was a change of management, which is the story of all television. And a new person came in and they they felt that I wasn't cool enough to be on CBBC. That was the exact words they gave. I was like, okay, that's that's bad. And I, I was 20 years old at the time. I'd done it between 18 and 20. And I thought, my God, what am I going to do? Where am I going to go? This is all I'd ever imagined doing. And now it's gone. And so I fell into a deep depression. And that lasted probably about a year. And then I ran out of money and was like, I'm going to have to get a job. What am I going to do? And so to fill the time and also be able to pay my rent, I set up a market stall selling magic tricks, which is the first job I'd ever had. It was incredibly lucrative. It was crazy. I worked Saturdays and Sundays in Greenwich Market. Yeah, I, I sold a product called a Svengali deck. Uh. And I sold a lot of Svengali decks. That was interesting. I sort of lived like a drug dealer for about <laughs> nine months, living exclusively in cash. Everything in my life was like... <laughs> I had a hollowed out encyclopedia with rolls of 100 pounds in them, banknotes. It was, uh, it was great. It was like I was in Narcos. Anyway, I uh, did that. And then lucky break, I was trying to like hustle my way back in. And the people that did T4 at the time, a company called Attit, they also made Pop World and they made a show called Transmission with T-Mobile. And I had a meeting with them and I said, look, I think, uh, I think there's something you could do with Pop News of Pop World goes out after the news has happened. So rather than have being reporting the news, which you can't do because you're pre-recording the show, we can do something with it. And I shot this thing just around Greenwich, this VT, and I got so close to getting on Pop World and then they cancelled Pop World. And I put the VT on YouTube and a guy called Peter Robinson, who runs Pop Justice, saw it. Oh. And he said, oh, we should go for a meeting. And I was like, okay, fine. Went for a meeting and he said, what kind of thing do you want to do? And at the time, my favourite website was a website called Holy Moly. I said, he said, what do you want to do? I said, I'd like to do something with the tone of Holy Moly. He said, wow, that's so weird. My business partner is the guy that runs Holy Moly. Why don't you come meet him? So this is a guy called Jamie East, who now is a successful broadcaster in his own right, but at the time ran this website that was a bit like TMZ, a British TMZ. And I went in and he said, can you edit? And I said, yeah. And I couldn't. And he said, can you film stuff? And I said, yeah, of course. And I couldn't. <laughs> and he was like, cool. Okay. Why don't you go and make a thing? And then give it to me. So I went off 
And I spent two weeks making a thing and my God, I did not know what I was doing. But I just stuck at it and eventually managed to shambolically put together this thing. Put it on his desk and he went, thanks. And I knew, now knowing Jamie, he would never have watched it. It would have taken years for him to get around to it. As I left, a phone call came in from MTV and they said, have you got anyone to interview Carrie Katona? She's doing a thing tonight. And Jamie was like, no, we're not going. Oh, hang on, mate, what are you doing tonight? And he sent me <laughs> off. And I did this interview that at a time went sort of mini viral and uh, changed my life because the next day Jamie said, right, come and work for us. And I became this sort of like red carpet, silly interviewer. And that got caught the attention of T4 and it caught the attention of Radio 1. Those two things happened pretty simultaneously. T4 I'd really wanted to do. Radio 1 I had never sort of like even imagined that I would end up doing it. Yeah, they both sort of took a punt on me and they both thankfully worked out really well. And and yeah, particularly with the radio, I haven't looked back since. Some of the, some of the, the presenting side of things on, on the television that you've done, interested in, in a show that actually one of my friends edited, which was Release the Hounds. <laughs> Two weeks in Lithuania, which is a beautiful country, by the way. <laughs> but where Release the Hounds was happening was in a woodland, a deep, dark woodland on a abandoned rabbit fur factory. And so a lot of the props that you see in Release the Hounds, which are meant to be sort of horror props, are just the stuff that was already there. Always the best props. It was a place where they were just ripping fur off rabbits. <laughs> yeah, like a fur-stretching machine. You just go, oh, yeah, exactly, we'll use that yeah. for a game. Yeah. <laughs> if you could just describe to us, what for people who don't know this show, what Release the Hounds is. So Release the Hounds was a horror game show for ITV2. So Reggie Yates did the first few series, and then I took over. The idea was that celebrities would come to Lithuania to this deep dark wood and they'd take on games and challenges a bit of the sort of stuff that you'd see on I'm a celebrity those kind of challenges over a night and they would rack up points and those points would then be converted into a head start that they would receive in a race they were going to do down a, a sort of gated track where they would be chased by some dogs and if the dogs caught them they wouldn't win money but if the dogs didn't catch them, then they would win money for charity. I'd seen the show, didn't know what to expect when I went out to do it. But my God, I don't know how, how they got away with it because really? it was genuinely terrifying. Yeah. There's some people that would look at that and go, that's kind of fun. I'd like to have a go at that. And there's the other sort of people that would go, never in a million years am I doing that. Well, I think I was in the first camp before I saw it in, in the flesh. I was like, you know, it's fun. And then I saw it happening. I was like, you couldn't pay me to get in there with those dogs and do that. It was, yeah, it's quite extraordinary. I spent most of it in Caravan, which was, must have been built in the 1970s, in this little forest. I convinced my friend James Farmer, who's a comedy writer, to come out with me to kind of work on scripty bits, but also mainly for company. And so, yeah, we sat in this (laughs) caravan for like two weeks and it was freezing cold. But it was a lot of fun. It was a really ambitiously shot show as well. It looked beautiful. At the same time, you had devised a show called Dress to Impress, which I suppose you could say is like the anti-naked attraction so in the people who got, <laughs> got dressed up. And it's also that rare thing, the recommissioned dating show. What was the success of that show, do you think? I'd sort of dabbled in formatty bits. And I was very specifically and quite cynically looking for a pile of high sell them cheap format so i wanted a come dime with me basically and i was like right what, what right. can what can work in that territory i had a relationship with itv2 from from making some shows for them before both as a presenter and with the kind of production hat on 
I had the idea. And first thing for Chester Impress was I was out shopping, trying to buy my wife a birthday present. And I was in Topshop on Oxford Street. And I was just having a terrible time because I was like, I just don't know what to get. And I was like, I, and I know this person. I know what she likes. It was so stressful. And I had about half an hour to do it. And I was flapping around and I thought, God, if someone filmed me doing this, it would be funny because it is chaos. And I thought, well, is that a show? And I thought, well, actually, if it's, if it's people buying for someone that they don't know and trying to convince them that their outfit's the best for a date, that could work quite well. And initially I thought maybe it could be a ad-funded Topshop, Instagram, YouTube type thing. Well, that might be fun because they used to have a men's section upstairs and a women's section downstairs. I thought the woman could go upstairs and the man could go downstairs and then they'd meet up. And I thought that'd be quite a fun thing. And then I was like, actually, no, I think this could be that stack of high, sell them cheap format. And so, yeah, we pitched it. We made a pilot of it. I partnered up with ITV Studios for it, who've been fantastic. We make the show out of Manchester. I was very heavily involved in the pilot because... I totally wanted to get it right. I ended up doing the voiceover because I was there really? and free. And because of that, I kind of stuck and I ended up then doing it on the on the show. And yeah, we've done three series of it now, 90 episodes. Yeah, and, it, and it's on, it's probably on right now. It's on all the time, every day. You know, it's a funny show, I think. It's like, it's eternally surprising how bad people are at shopping for strangers. Isn't there some sort of horrible statistic? Husbands buy their wives red laundry 95% of the time or something. And actually women just say, look, I just want some like plain grey yeah. <laughs> pants and that'll, that'll do me fine. I don't think any woman says that, Davish. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> Give me some plain grey pants, please. <laughs> this is a phrase I cannot imagine. Yeah, we've learned something about you there, David. <laughs> What's so nice about the format is it's cast brilliantly. The, the casting team do such a good job. And actually the challenges that are set... There are often things where I think I'd be completely clueless. I, you know, I would not know what to go and buy here. And also there's little tricks along the way, like they only hear the brief once. So if they mishear a word and they're sort of in the dark a bit, or, or they just never heard of the reference. Like my favourite episode is there's a guy that the woman asks to be dressed like a Marilyn Monroe, and he's never heard of Marilyn Monroe. <laughs> and... As he, every time he says her name, like sort of um, Chinese whispers, it gets different every time. So, so he starts off saying, <laughs> I don't know who that is. And it ends up at like Madeline McCrow or something at the end. He just doesn't know. Uh, Marilyn Manson. Yeah. yeah. He has got no idea. Yeah. So it's, it's sort of joyful. And I think people come into it with, with a real confidence about winning. And, uh, and also sometimes it's very surprising. Like the people who just don't put in the effort or, or, or you know, come up with something terrible the person that you know is going to pick them for the date seems to like it it's a real roller coaster of that show and what's lovely about it is that we've been able to be really diverse and inclusive with our casting without ever feeling like too on the nose or like it's been prescriptive we've got guys buying for guys girls buying for girls we've had bisexual episodes we've had someone in a wheelchair you know it's just been like a, an amazing volume of cast members that we've been through and uh and yeah, all of them have done a, done a great job. Now, as we mentioned in the news section, things are a little quiet now, so it's possibly a good time to maybe brush up the CV and see if you can skill up. So how can you develop several hats to stay relevant in the TV industry? And I have to say, Justin, this is something that kind of caught me a bit unawares as I was 
growing through the the industry in the maybe the last decade i suppose in that i always felt like i had a particular sort of hat of being what you might call sort of a content producer sort of a medium level producer on, on tv shows yeah. and increasingly this is something that's getting rarer and rarer because in two ways one is that people are definitely multi-skilling in terms of the number of genres that they yeah. work on now it's seen as being much more useful if you can say well i've worked in entertainment and in reality and in factual entertainment and 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 this is something you've seen more and more and uh, so rather than being a specialist in the genre which i to be honest in especially in terms of game shows i i see as a benefit still nevertheless that's that's been the way things have gone in the employment market and secondly in terms of the number of, of um, roles that people can do number of levels from junior to senior people seem to kind of like not not necessarily stick at their category of of where they are on the ladder they kind of like can either go a couple of rungs up or a couple of rungs down depending on one job or yeah depending on what jobs are available yeah no i think it's a really interesting thing i mean i remember the time when suddenly every researcher became a shooting ap which basically meant that they were a researcher who had once pointed a small camera at a Big Brother contestants for a, you know a bit of Big Brother extra or something, and they were now effect- effectively presenting them as a single camera director, mm. which they most certainly weren't. But now I think that we do have to have a number of hats. I mean, you're you're right that the day of the specialists feels like it's gone, and it's a shame, really. Uh, but I think it's all about being nimble in the end. There certainly was a time when I first started in television, documentary companies made documentaries and game show companies made game shows. And therefore, when you were bidding for slots or a budget or whatever for for a TV TV network, there was a relatively small number of companies that, you know, pitched game shows to the head of game shows. You know, 10 years later, 20 years later, everybody and their dog was pitching, you know, every genre to every genre head. Mm. And whilst it's true that mostly the experienced people rose like cream to the top, it certainly muddied the water and it certainly made it much harder to compete. I think there's a broader point, which is in the training that I do, we make a big point about the television ecosystem that you know, the t- television is, is, a, is a structure that runs all the way from people having an idea at one end to selling tea towels and baseball caps of the show at the other. And the more that you know about all the working parts, the better you are at the part that you work in. Mm. And, I, and I do believe that. I think you know whether you've sat in an edit uh, for many many years you may not become an editor but you become a better producer a better director because you know what happens in the edit and i think right. and i think the the companies that sort of silo people i mean very often these days you know directors don't go to the edit anymore because it's too expensive which is just i find really odd and similarly, if you want to create formats, most important thing you can do is to go to a market like MIPCOM or MIPTV or, or whatever, or real screen, and see what happens when they're sold at the other end. 
Because if you, if you don't know what makes something attractive to a buyer, how can you make up a format, you know, at the idea stage that teaches you how to do it? So I think certainly having an, having an awareness of all of these things, whether you actually wear them as a hat is is another matter. I mean, there's two things, isn't there? One is that is like the availability of training to do diff- completely different skills working horizontally yeah. across different hats that is pretty sketchy in the tv industry and i think the tv industry knows that some of the larger indies do have sort of internal training schemes for people to try and skill up and that's that's good to see i think one thing that's slightly making things a little difficult is that as sort of established people that are trying to still earn money in their career you sometimes find that people who might even be let's say a series producer could also say well actually i can also do um, consultant producer or i could do uh, edit producing i had to look after the edit like a producer used to do or i could verify questions or i could yeah. even write questions and you sort of go wow i mean like so if you're hoovering up those jobs then what's happening to all the people that would have done those jobs yeah, yeah. Um, no i think i think that's true and i think certainly there is a feels like there's an incentive for anyone who's you know putting their cv into a company to try and sound as indispensable as possible and to say listen whatever whatever work you've got that needs doing you know i can do it i mean at the in sort of international side of things you know being a flying producer for example is a very specific kind of job because it's not just about knowing the show and demanding that the show is made that way but it is about understanding the culture into which that show is going listening to how aspects of your show are going to clash with that culture and then knowing the show well enough to be able to adapt to help adapt elements of the show to fit without undermining the, the format itself and that's a you know, that's a very particular skill which is largely done by flying producers but you do find you know companies that will just send the original producer off with the show to you know, put them on a plane somewhere and mm. that they, they don't they, they don't know what they're doing the most ridiculous advert i think i've seen for a job was that they wanted a full-on question editor who was also an editor for the footage, who was also a contestant researcher. Wow, oh, that's ridiculous. I mean, yeah. th- those are three almost entirely separate skills as far as I'm concerned, sort of. I There are, say, development exec- even development executive jobs I've mm. seen where they've asked people to be able to edit so that they can do their own cutting together of, of sizzle reels of, of clips to show off their formats and you can sort of go well okay i can sort of see a, a basic synergy there it feels a bit lazy that you have no money whatsoever to either do it externally or to maybe get junior people in your company to skill up and, and do that for the development exec but i can still see some reason for that but i cannot see a, why a contest a question editor needs to be the cont- contestant researcher well it sounds like a, an issue, a budgetary answer to that question i suppose you know when again when you and i start in this industry there were there were a lot of individual jobs that ceased to exist on their own that were around then and the milieu the culture of the people that are moving up into our industry now are coming from a world of user-generated content where they kind of assume if you like that they are people that can make whole videos which they 
probably are and they've picked up some skills along the way in order to be able to do that and some of them can do it very well and therefore they assume that when they go into the professional realm of television that um, they have working knowledge in, in, in all of those areas and probably they didn't even want to do just one thing because they're used to you know, being in charge of the whole train set. Well, once this episode's finished, I will send this off to our editors and producers, in other words, you and me. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's right. well, yeah, that's a really good example, though, because yeah, during lockdown, I thought, what am I going to do with this time? And I taught myself how to use Final Cut Pro because I've sat in hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of hours of editing I've, I've watched it being done all of this time. And I thought when I started in TV and edit suite cost about £20,000 and I got Final Cut Pro onto my laptop for £300. Yeah. Um, and I could cut, a, if I had the skills, I could cut a movie. But I just thought, okay, this is a you know, this is a sort of skilling up I'd like to do. And there you go. Don't don't tell them that, Justin. They'll put the price up at £20,000 again. <laughs> <laughs> We now return to our interview with Matt Edmondson and discuss his hosting of a perennial format of recent years and also how he segued into the board games industry. So let's let's talk about Beauty and the Geek because this is a show that was around, I remember a long time ago, I think about 2006 or something like that. And now it's come back on Discovery Plus with you and and I think your co-host, your Radio 1 co-host, Molly. So tell us about that. Yes, yeah, so Molly and I do the radio show together. We are genuinely best friends and we hang out all the time. We speak every day. She's off at the moment. She's on maternity leave. And so yeah, it's been quite weird not having her in my day-to-day life. But in the summer, we shot Beauty and the Geek and it was such a lovely experience. I watched the show, I think. It used to be on T4 back in the day. I think it was a bit more cynical and a bit more snide, as I think TV probably was back then. Our objective was to bring it back up to date and make it incredibly warm, and I think we really achieved that. The cast that we had was so lovely, and I'm still in touch with lots of them. They're still in touch with each other, and, you know, how many reality shows can you say that about? Where the <laughs> cast actually come out of it liking each other at the end. Real relationships blossomed, and we genuinely got to the end of the experience. And if you don't know the format, it's, it's a load of geeky guys and a load of, on the surface, sort of beauty. So, so girls who people might think, they might dismiss them as just being people who are good looking rather than seeing the depth that they offer the world. And the idea is that they get partnered up and bring out of each other those sort of hidden parts yeah. that the rest of the world doesn't see. And it was a really beautiful show. Like I cried at the end of it. It was, it was a lovely thing to do. And it was so fun working with Moll. And, and I think we've been looking for you know we've been offered quite a few telly things none of which felt quite right because i think we really wanted to get this a, a similar vibe to what we do on the radio that's really important for us yeah. Uh, and so yeah we sort of waited and it's the most honest version of us that you will see on that show was it being on a streamer did it give you a little bit more space to, to do your own thing or was there any other benefits to doing it for Discovery Plus than, let's say, if it had been on an, another ITV2 show? I don't think so, to be honest. I think the production company, Initial, had, had pitched it with us as hosts. They knew what they wanted from us, and they wanted lots of involvement. They wanted natural chemistry. They wanted our friendship, basically, because yeah. 
I think they thought I was a geek and that Molly was a beauty. How dare they? That's confusing. I thought you'd been... It was the other way around, yeah. Because the other other round. Oh, I see. (laughs) Uh, So I think they wanted the authenticity of our relationship. And in a way, we can't deliver anything else. You know, that is is what we are together. My favourite thing in the world is making Molly laugh. So it was probably only ever going to go that way. You were involved in some way with Make Me Prime Minister, the Channel 4 series. So tell me how that came about, because that sounds really interesting. My One of my best friends from school, a guy called Reese, he's like the clever one of our group, and he he ended up working at Number 10 in comms there, oh. and he did it for a few years, and the stories he used to tell us were amazing. And he's a very creative man, and you know he and I have worked on other things, like I run a board games company, and he and I have done board games together in the past. We were just sat around one day chatting, and... We said, oh, if people knew what it was like to be the prime minister, no one would want the job. Uh-huh. And we said, well, how would that work? How, what would they do? Well, you could kind of build a fake number 10 and you could do challenges that kind of test the sorts of things that you would need to be a prime minister. And we had just this perfect moment in time where, if you remember, we'd been through about five prime ministers. We'd come out of lockdown. Boris's head was about to be chopped We'd had Theresa May briefly before that. We were about to have Liz Truss. We were about to have Rishi Sunak. And we we found this sort of like just perfect window to talk to Channel 4 and say, we've got this thing that we think right now could really be good. In sort of conjunction with the universe, we partnered up with 2-4, who were amazing. Yeah, I I think it's it's probably the biggest type of show I'll ever be involved in. It It was like crazy scale. We had Alistair Campbell and Baroness Saeed of Arcee as our experts guiding the whole thing. And it was a really weird one because, you know, I spend a lot of my life trying to get things from my imagination out into the real world. And it's very hard work. And to see this come together and and have so many talented people pull together to make it was incredibly rewarding. And the day that we kind of turned off and walked around this fake number 10 was really, really joyful. Frustratingly, I had about four other things going on at the time that it was being produced. And so I, I kind of very much dipped in and out. But Reese went and did his first job in TV as basically like a uh, representative of my production company as, as an exec on the show. So it was an amazing thing for him. And, and actually his background in the <laughs> political world was really useful. So basically, what's his first TV credit as executive producer? <laughs> I, do you know what? I don't know what they credited him as. I think there was some weird rule around you could only have so many exec producers on a show, and there were already a lot of a lot of them. It usually doesn't stop most production companies I've I know. I've worked with dicking as many producers as possible onto the credits. He definitely got format co-creator and maybe like oh god I can't remember they they come up with things. He was very chilled about it. <laughs> now. One thing that I'm a big fan of is board games. Oh, great. Very interested to talk to you about your your career in, in, in becoming a board game creator. I believe it starts off with one called Obama Llama. Is that, was that right. your first yeah, one? Yeah. yeah, that's correct. Yeah. That segued into a BBC One format. Now, when I grew up in like the sort of 80s when I was watching most television as a youngster, there used to be things like TV Scrabble and Trivial Pursuit with Rory McGrath. There used to be a, a lot of board games on television. And then... There haven't been so many recently. And then now, like, the board game market's just gone crazy. How did your idea for the board game come about? And then how did you transfer it to telly? 
Yeah. Well, on that point, even things like The Traitors, which is the best format of the last 20 years, yeah. that comes from a board game called Werewolf. Or there's a few different versions of it. But the mechanic is exactly from the board game and they just turned it into a TV show. So I had come up with the TV show first. So I used to, on text with friends, play this stupid game where I would send clues of celebrities doing things that rhymed with their own names. So I'd send a text saying, Doug Ross from ER is showing you his bottom. And then the first one to text back, George Clooney's doing a Mooney, would win the point. <laughs> and then I did it on the radio, and it was incredibly popular on the radio. So popular, I thought, this is too good for the radio. This should be a TV show. And so I pitched a show that was a bit like, I guess it's sort of the, the essence of catchphrase. You know, you'd see like animated rhyming things and have to guess what they were. We got down to the final two story of my life this step five down to the final two shows and then they went with another show i was like okay but i couldn't let go of the idea i was like there's something in this i thought maybe it could be a board game and i think that most of my life is thinking about formats in one way or the other you know yeah. radio features tv formats and really board games they're just tv formats you don't have to get cameras in i thought okay how would i work this into an idea and the idea came pretty quickly about how I would do it. And I thought, right, well, let's see how many of these clues I can write. And I had a weekend at my in-laws. They're quite into sport. I think the cricket was on or something. And they were just watching that. And so I thought, I'll just, on my notes off my phone, see how many I can write. And I wrote 750 of them. And I was like, okay, I've got enough for a game here. Uh -huh. So I prototyped it. I had, I had, you know, I found like one of those websites where you get playing cards printed with your family's faces on the back or whatever. <laughs> and uh, I, I did some rough designs, sent them off, and I had this sort of playable version of the game. And I, uh, I had been contacted by a lady in the board games PR industry, a lady called Leslie Singleton, who runs Playtime PR, and she sent me the game Bananagrams, which is a great game. And I had, I think, tweeted about it. And so then she was just sending me stuff all the time. And I messaged her and said, can I meet you? I've got a board game I want to talk about, which I think is the worst thing you can say to anyone in the <laughs> board games industry. They're like, oh my God, everyone thinks they've got an idea for a board game. And I showed her the game. She was like, that's actually really good. You've got two options. One is to self-publish, which sounded like a lot of work, setting up a business and finding a manufacturer and all the rest of it. Or you can license it to another company. She introduced me to a company called Big Potato Games. At the time, they made a game called Linky. And I pitched it to them, and 15 minutes after leaving their office, they called me and said, can you come back? We want that prototype. We're going to pitch it to John Lewis tomorrow. Well, We'd like to well, license it from you. And so, kind of like anything in life, once you've done something once, you're like, oh, I could do this again. And so, every time I thought of something that could work as a board game, I would go through that same process, prototype it, take it off. And I, I licensed maybe four or five games through them. I did one through Mattel. And I really enjoyed it. And it was like a, it was like a, you know, it's the dream, isn't it? It's like money while you sleep because yeah. I didn't have to do anything. And then uh, every course they'd send me a check because people had gone out and bought the games. And then in lockdown, we were meant to make a series of Dress to Impress, but we couldn't because it's shot in shopping centres. So I suddenly found myself with loads of free time. And I thought, oh God, what can I do? And at the same time, my brother-in-law, who's not creative, but is a brilliant business person, he was running a cleaning business. And again, that stopped, ground to a halt, because no one could have cleaners in their homes. Right. And he was like, I need to do something. And he said, I'm thinking about selling stuff on Amazon. I said, well, have you thought about board games? He was like, yeah, but, you know, we'd have to come up with one. I was like, I've got a drawer of like 100 games I've never done anything with. I've not got around to. Why don't we try and do one? 
And so we did, we, in lockdown, I sort of taught myself graphic design. He figured out how to do Amazon and, and, and how to, you know, found a manufacturer and all that kind of stuff. I did all the creative, he did all the business, and we produced this game called Answergrams. I mean, it was a write-off flap. We didn't know what we were doing. And, you know, I look back on that time and think, there were two idiots that were totally clueless. But we managed to get the game made and sold in time for Christmas. And we made 3,000 of them, and we sold them all in 10 days. Wow. And we were like, oh, this could be quite good. We've got, we might have a little, a little side hustle here. And that side hustle has now grown to become Lawrence's entire life <laughs> and my major source of income. That was, what, two years ago? And we've got 12 games out now, a couple more coming out this year. We've just taken on our first licensed games. So we've, someone else came to us with an idea, which is brilliant, and uh, we're licensing that. We've managed to get three games into Walmart in America. Cool. It's, um, it's gone crazy. You're now quite a big player now because you've got this distribution deal with Asmodee, one of the world's biggest games companies. I don't know if they're the, the biggest, but they're a very big name player. So your games are now going all around the world. We have different distributors in different territories. So right. in the UK, Asmodee look after our distribution. In the US, they also look after our distribution. We're talking to the people in Canada about theirs. And then we also have other distributors in like Poland, Germany, France, Spain, Scandinavian countries that know their territories really well. So they then license, either license or they, you know, we, we adapt the language and the rules and stuff for, for their territories. So yeah, it's gone. It's it's gone a bit wild, but we're really fortunate to have met Asmodee. I'd like to say Asmodee. I think also very fortunate to have met us. Whilst they distribute for us, we we do a lot of the pitching ourselves. You know, my my background being in presenting and also in pitching for TV things, we do we do killer pitches for board games, which I don't think a lot of other people in the board game industry do. But I treat them all as if I'm trying to sell a TV show to NBC. You know, yeah, it's like yeah. I I go big on it. I love it. For me, it's a been a wonderful creative release because there isn't a commissioner involved well i was just going to say is like everything's sort of kind of more under your control huge rests on your basic idea and how it, how you sell it other than other people exactly. so obviously if you make a bad product it will probably tank but i think that there is something really liberating about not relying on uh, a gatekeeper for it and i think if i was if I was a full-time TV producer, I think I'd be permanently depressed because I'd probably pitch a hundred things a year, of which, if you're lucky, one gets made right. or two go to pilot, you know. And then even when you do it, it's crazy hard work and the returns aren't incredible. You know, it's uh, it's sort of more of a thing of, oh, well, this should be a show because it's a good idea that drives me on that front. So, yeah, it's quite it's quite nice to have sort of different plates spinning in different areas. Brilliant. Well... Whatever extra plates are going to be in your media dinner service in the future, we will look forward to seeing, uh, Matt. But, oh, God, my wife dreads the day that I come back and say, I'm into this now, because <laughs> uh, it happens quite a lot, where I'm like, I'm making board games now, or I'm making an album now. She'll, uh, yeah, she's constantly like, oh, God, what's going to what's gonna capture his attention next? I've gone into VR. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Brilliant. Well, I really appreciate your time, Matt, and thanks very much, Dave, for joining us on TV Show and Tell. Thanks so much. I loved it. So I've just come out from a production period when we filmed a number of shows back to back. And it just made me think about what are the sort of neat little tips and tricks that a producer can have to make a filming block go that little bit smoother. So 
I'll kick off with the first one. The first one is really you've got to stay organized. You've got to take notes while you're doing things. Mm-hmm. So when we were recording these shows, if there's things like a retake or a mistake that somebody had said or if there's a piece of like potentially i might have to swap two half shows around because the second show was actually better than the first so i i want to sort of explore that possibility so anything like that they're just gold dust for editors further down the, the line and although yes there are a certain amount of notes taken by uh, in television terms, what's usually called the, the the PA, the producer's assistant, they they all just doing timings of of things, mm. generally speaking, and anything editorial is is not something that's for them to decide. That's something that you're you're deciding. So, and also trying to if if you swap questions around between shows, trying to keep on on track of things like that. What questions you have used, you haven't used, you've got to keep notes at the time because if you promise yourself. I'll do this later. I'll tidy this up later. It, like once you've gone beyond the at the end of the day, I promise you, you will not remember for sure what actually happened. Yeah, I, it's so funny that you start with that because I had written down something quite similar, which is definitely about keeping notes, and that was to I always say to people when I'm making my own show around the world is at the end of the day, write down the best bits of the show. Because you will forget them. You won't remember them. Your editor might, when they look at the rough footage, might have a different view. But you know in the studio what the moments were and write them down. Uh, Even if it's just a paragraph or a few lines. So you can give to the editor and say, the best bit of this show was when this happened. And the feeling around it was was this. Give you an example. We were doing an episode of Chef in your area in Mexico, we had a contestant who was being shouted at so much by the chef that they'd shut down uh, and they were doing very badly and they weren't saying a word. And we were kind of saying to the chef to cool it a bit down their ear. And we finally stopped and we spoke to the chef and said, Look, you've got to get him back on site. If you're going to win this game, you've got to get him back. We're not going to help you. You're a team. This is your job. But he's not a mm-hmm. sous chef. He's a member of the public. You've lost him. You need to get him back. <laughs> he did. And it was a real it was a real turning point in the show. And eventually this contestant and his chef won the episode. But it was, it was a very particular moment which happened in the few minutes after our mid-briefing. It was one of the very few occasions we ever, ever stopped filming. But what it did was it allowed the editor to keep this contestant's uh, static behaviour in, if, if you see what I mean. Because otherwise he'd have looked at it. He's always got other people to cut to. There's other chefs, other contestants or whatever. So if you've got a contestant that's just not reacting, not speaking, whatever, right. you cut around them. You look for the entertaining stuff. Mm. And by telling him what the story of the episode was, it allowed him to keep that in and effectively have the viewer thinking, what's wrong with this guy? You know, why is he, mm. what an idiot, you know, come on, come on, get on with it, get on with it, but listen to your chef, you know, and to get quite annoyed with him, then, you know, have this complete turnaround in the middle. Mm. Interesting. That's a good one. My next one is record wild track. <laughs> so this is basically get your main host to record a number of useful phrases such as um, 
you know, you've got a minute left or the scores at the end of that round are, or David's team are in the lead, etc. So just whatever phrases that come up time and time again. So if you have to rebuild, let's say that you re- realize in the edit that the scores were wrong, but the outcome wasn't changed. If you've still got a host that says five points, six points, seven points in yeah. even if it's done in audio because at least you've got if you've got that you can still slightly cut away from the from the from the host saying these things then then you can rebuild a lot of things in the edit the worst case <laughs> i had of that was when they had lost the wild track that i deliberately asked them to record and then they had to ring me up while i was in a pub and i had to go down into the toilets of this pub <laughs> that uh, had been existing since the time of the Great Fire of London, and and say something like the Mitchell family have scored sixty points, <laughs> and they had to in, they had to put this. I think it was only for a pilot tape, but even so, that uh, it was highly inconvenient that they'd lost this wild track and I had to go <laughs> record this in the toilet. But yeah, no, it's really important, and it also allows you to um, change the rhythm of things. So, for example. Uh, on the Crystal Maze, the games were two minutes, two and a half minutes, or three minutes. But sometimes in the edit, we'd have a situation where the game was boring at three minutes and was fun at two minutes. And we always had wild track of the hosts saying, this game, this is a two minute game, this is a two and a half minute game, this is a three minute game. And because we had simultaneous shots, if you like, of the host letting them into the cell from the outside and then coming into the cell from the inside, we could always have that voiceover off camera. And it just allowed us to add drama to, to a good game, which, as you say, the outcome was already predetermined, obviously, by having shot it. It's always worth doing in situ, even if you're in a organized environment like a TV studio, if you just sort of say to yourself, oh, I'll get them to dub it in a voiceover studio later and then we'll put echo on it, it does not sound the no. same. I can always tell when they've got, say, Jeremy Paxman or the guy from Mastermind to retake a question that they've fluffed. It, it, it just doesn't <laughs> sound the same at all, especially as often people are wearing earphones or they're on quite high-quality speakers these mm. days. We can tell, producers. We can tell. <laughs> yeah, that's a good one. On on a similar track, there's this sort of principle I have called filming one for Lloyd's. Lloyd's was, a, and it still is, a very famous insurance company in London. And the, the saying of like one for Lloyd's is, is basically a, a way of ensuring that you've got the footage that you need mm. and what sometimes happens especially on quiz shows is that people sort of go oh i think you said that team a were in the lead but actually it's team b and then there's often like a big argument about no no no, no i'm pretty sure i said it was team b that i said then people can get a bit confused for the next two three minutes and they'll, then they'll say tell you what, let's let's rewind the tape and see what you said it's like no that's not what you do what you do is you get them to say the other option and then you can work it out in the edit and you can choose the, yeah. the version that you want in the edit. There's just like, if there's any argument about that you haven't got the phrase you need, uh, just just get them to say the phrase you need and, and then as long as you've got it in the can, then... Then, uh, gosh, that's an old phrase as well. <laughs> as, long as, you, as long as you've What's got the, can, the binary digits in, in, in the SSD drive, um, then then you're golden. I think we're still allowed to use that. 
So one of my hacks is about control of, of physical scripts. Um, so when you're shooting a show, obviously loads of different people have got scripts of the show, whether it's the camera scripts or the shooting scripts or whatever. And they shows, you know, generate a great deal of paper and these things can get left around and contestants can become extremely good detectives at finding scripts and they may not have the questions on them, but they can be useful to them in a variety of different ways, particularly if you're doing like a reality competition and something like that. So I always impose quite a serious system for ensuring that we know who's got scripts, that the scripts are watermarked, and also that people uh, are responsible for taking care of their own scripts. Because mm. there's a serious amount of information on those scripts, including people's personal phone numbers mm. and potentially could spoil surprises if there's things mentioned in, in the script. Yeah. So, yeah, it's it's a big deal. One other one I have is what I call the spares of spares principle. It's like it's always good to go in knowing that you've got a spare for your spare. Mm. So, like, the question shows, obviously, you've got to have enough material so that even if let's say a entire show goes down you've got an, an entire show's worth of questions ready to go and then even if there's a round of that that there's a dispute over that you've got something that you can plug into <laughs> that gap and obviously only so far you can go but you sometimes on, on like a the, the first series of something you might have to overwrite by a third because you you don't know whether the game is by underrun compared to what you thought or I've had rounds completely <laughs> changed around on the morning of a shoot. So you have to have spares and spares of everything, or all the resources you need, whether it's uh, questions or contestants or, or whatever. Graph graphics, like photos and music and things like that also. Mm. I think my last hack would be for your dress rehearsal to have as good contestants as you can possibly have. There is a tendency uh, to cast for the dress rehearsal um, contestants that clearly weren't going to make it onto the actual show and the result of that is I have been in so many dress rehearsals where it's been pretty terrible the atmosphere has been bad and the commissioning editor or even the producers have turned around and said well the show doesn't work and you have to say it doesn't work because it hasn't been cast properly. And I promise you that when we've got the right contestants that have gone through the whole mm -hmm. contestant process, this will fly and sing and be delightful. Um, the only thing that's gone wrong today is the contestants didn't react. They didn't really understand what was going on. The hosts and the other people on the show didn't really know what to do with them because they weren't behaving like TV contestants. So you can really put a show into jeopardy if you're not careful on the rest rehearsal day because everyone will look for other reasons why the show doesn't work and it's 99 percent of the time it's because you're just using some friends or some very very also ran people to be contestants so yes they may not be people who haven't made it onto the show but hopefully it's just because that you know they weren't available on those days but they are the best you can get that's a really good one so what filming hacks do you have? Is there something that we haven't mentioned? Why don't you contact the show? Contact at tvshowandtell.com or give us a tweet at TV Podcast. So we're back with Matt Edmondson and it's time for 
show and tell item. And what have you got to show me and Justin? Prepare to be dazzled. Okay. Because I have brought with me the much coveted Richard Osman's House of Games trophy. Ooh. Now, this is a thing that sits proudly in my office. I've never really won anything before. I've won a couple of TV quizzes. I won Weakest Link. I definitely wasn't the strongest link. Jay Rayner was, but I killed him off in the last minute. <laughs> but House of Games, my dream. Love the show. Love Richard Osman. Love the format. Loved everything about it. I went on the show. I got invited to go on the show, and I thought to myself, right, remember, this is being filmed, so you have to just act normal. You don't have to win. You don't have to try and get all the points. Just go on. Be a nice guy, a normal human being. And I got there, and I forgot all of that. I forgot that I was on TV, <laughs> and I thought that I was just playing games. And my God, I mean, I'm deeply competitive. As was Andy Hamilton, the comedy writer. He's yeah. a genius. Drop the Dead Donkey. Well, Regular panellist on I Got News for You. Like, clever guy. You shoot five episodes over a day. He and I were at war. Oh, my God. The poor other contestants didn't get a look in. He and I were both gunning for it big time. I forgot to say anything interesting or entertaining. All I was doing <laughs> was wanting to win points. And, and I, I managed to do it. Two points I pipped Andy on the final day. He'd won two of the days I'd won two, and it was the decider. And I got this trophy. I got a six-year-old daughter called Ivy, and nothing I've ever done has impressed her. But when I brought home the trophy, <laughs> she couldn't believe I'd won a trophy. And it's quite big. It's almost offensively big. And so, yeah, that was like a culmination of all of, all of my loves, really, getting to go into a TV studio and play games brilliant what were your prize picks on the day that you won i am the proud owner of a original man deck chair well, which i've not yet used i'm currently unsoiled i wasn't planning to soil it interestingly my wife doesn't want it out of the house i don't know why so i got that and i also got the alarm clock the richard osman alarm clock which was great it's like a proper twin bell alarm clock from the olden days which puts the fear of god into you when it goes off yeah. Great. Oh, oh, I also won a dressing gown. I was annoyed to not get the luggage. Really wanted the luggage. Yeah. That would have been good. Yeah. A prized one. <laughs> Hopefully you'll get invited back on the show and, and get that prized luggage. I'd do it for free. You can book me for free. I will go back and do it. I loved it. You heard it here. Uh, Matt, it's been brilliant. Thanks so much indeed. Thank you. Thanks, guys. So we've been talking to Matt Edmondson today about board games and we're going to play our own little game at the end of the podcast, Fake or Format. And this time it's Justin's turn. Okay, so I've got two as ever. One is fake and one is real, which is the real one. So the first one is called Penitence Compete. Wow, okay. And it's a reality show um, in which a rabbi, a Buddhist monk an orthodox priest and an imam walk into a bar <laughs> yes <laughs> that would that would kind of yeah well you'll see why that would be inappropriate in a minute um sit down with a group of 10 atheists and they each attempt to convert them to their religion <laughs> and the prize <laughs> the prize is a pilgrimage to the spiritual home of their new religion Okay, whether it's Tibet or Jerusalem or whatever. <laughs> so that's penitence compete. Wow, okay. 
The second one is called Meat Battle. So not dissimilar. Um, this time you've got 10 vegetarians who are taken to a, a rocky island off the Scottish coast, given very basic rations for a month. And there is a team of 10 meat eaters, meat eaters armed with an ox and a fire pit who try to persuade them to change their minds and eat meat. Wow. So penitents compete or meat battle. Uh, do I get any sort of clues as to where these were on TV? The penitents compete was Turkey and meat battle was the UK. Mm-hmm. What a pair of titles, though. I mean, it's just, it's just the titles I can't <laughs> even get my head around that there was a show called The Equivalent of Penitence Compete. Oh, I'm going to show up my ignorance of cultures to here, but like, I guess Turkey is sort of in a bit of a nexus of geographically between Islam and Christianity, and uh, I could sort of see that, like, that kind of does make sense if it was in the uk why have i not heard of meat battle am i really out of touch that much this this, this logic's not going to make any sense whatsoever but like i would have thought there would have been a major like oh i know disgraced can you believe the state at which television sunk so low that they're making a game show out of religion if if that had really happened you know, there would have been some sort of Daily Mail article about penitents compete. And yet, I think that one's the real one. So I'm going to go for that. <laughs> okay, well, you're right. Penitents compete is the real one. <laughs> okay. It was actually cancelled in the end. Ah. Um, so uh, it was supposed to start beginning to air in September 2009. Um, but there was... Um, a lot of controversy about it, as you might imagine. So it was, in fact, cancelled in the end. Um, uh-huh. Meat battle was entirely made up. Okay. <laughs> That's a cracking pair of, <laughs> of titles. <laughs> I enjoyed that. <laughs> Goodness me. Good stuff. That really fr- fried my brain. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> Very good. So uh, that's it for for this episode of uh, TV Show and Tell. If you'd like to contact the show, you can tweet us at TV Show Podcast, or you can email us uh, contact at TV Show and Tell dot com. But for now, I've been David Bodicum, and I've been Justin Scruggy, and this has been TV Show and Tell. <laughs>